Good evening, everybody. My name is Maytag Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. He said I can sit, so I'm going to. This feels funny, standing without a podium. Yeah, used to that. I, uh, I'm grateful to be sober in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, here in your first few days of recovery or first few months of recovery, I want to welcome you. I love being sober. I really do. It's not what I'm supposed to be. It's just what I am. I, uh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a real alcoholic. I'm the guy that loves to drink. I didn't drink, drink because I had to. I didn't drink because I was running from anything or hiding from anything or covering up anything per se. I drank because I loved alcohol. That's not exactly how it started for me. And I'm going to go back a little bit. When I was growing up, I was, I was, uh, I don't know, I think I was about three years old when my real father went to prison. The only memory I have of him is when I was three years old, my mom took me there. And uh, they actually opened the bar doors and let me and my kid brother sit on his lap. And he was wearing the striped prison uniforms. And I can remember that. I really, I can remember that for years afterwards. But I never saw him again. We left there. We went home. And a couple of years later, my mom had a portuguese. And they started seeing each other and dating. And she fell in love and she filed for divorce from my father. And they set a wedding date and were planning to get married when I was seven years old. And my real father broke out of prison. Sold a car. And uh, tried to get back to Vicaria to stop the way. The CHP set up snipers and they put up those strips with the nails in them. He was speeding down 99 towards Vicaria. He hit the strips, tired blue, the car rolled, and he was killed. And my mom married the Portuguese and I became Oli's cousin. <laughs> And life became really interesting, you know. I had a, had a lot of cousins. My family was migrant farm workers in the early years when I was real young. And they traveled from California to Oregon and back with the crops. When I was five years old, they settled down in Visalia. My grandfather took a job as a beekeeper and working for the Bertholls at a farm out north of, or out east of Visalia, and they got a house there, and we all moved into it. My grandma and grandpa, my mom and us kids, my Aunt Violet and Uncle Lee, and their four kids. My mom had four, Aunt Violet had four, my grandmother had three kids living in the house besides their two daughters and two son-in-laws, and their four kids. Life was interesting. We slept on floors, the boys. The girls slept in the rooms with the parents. The boys got to sleep on the wooden floor in the front room 
sometimes we have to take the potato bugs out so we can sleep. But we get our sleep and we play in the day. And life was pretty good until my mom married that Portuguese. And life changed. We moved to Vitalia, got a house to live in. I started growing up under his roof. And things were different. My mom had four kids. He had a son from an earlier marriage. His wife died of leukemia before he remarried my mom. So I had a stepbrother. Him and my mom had three more kids and there ended up eight of us. And my stepdad always treated me and my brother and my two sisters that weren't his differently. And I'm not going to say he was wrong, but we were different. We were treated different. And when anything was done, we got the blame. And we got the punishment. And I didn't like it. I resented it. So even before alcohol, I knew what resentments were. And I was angry about it. A lot, a lot of years went by and a lot of anger built up and when I was I like to think it was when I was 13 but I believe I was older probably 15 or 16 he had put me on restriction for something that I deserved to be on restriction for and I didn't have a problem with that but then he seen me doing something when I was on restriction that he didn't think I was supposed to be doing so he extended my restriction and I wasn't doing anything wrong, and I didn't think I deserved to have my restriction extended, and I got mad, and I told him off. I was old enough that I had enough, and I told him off, and I told him, no more. And I told him, you know what, you're not my dad. You don't have any parental guidance or guardianship of me whatsoever. You haven't adopted me, you have no legal right over me, you have nothing to say to me. I didn't do anything wrong. Not only am I not extending my restriction, but I'm no longer accepting any kind of restriction you put on me. I'm not doing your stuff no more. And of course, being old cousin, he got mad and tried to hit me. And we got in, in a big argument. My mom stepped in between and broke it up, and she chewed me out. And I, I told him some stuff about my dad and told him if he was a real dad, anything like my dad, I'd listen to what he had to say. But he was dumb and I wasn't doing it. And that was that. And my mom chewed me out and she told me that my dad was a bum. And I had no right comparing my stepfather to my dad. She told me my dad was a drunk. That he drank all the time. And he ran up bar tabs in town. And he ran up tabs at the liquor stores. And all he did was drink and not work. And she worked two jobs when she was married to him. She worked as a waitress during the day and she worked cocktails at night. Make enough money to feed us kids. And he would come home drunk and take her milk money because she had a jar to go get more to drink. And at one time he ran a tab up at a liquor store to the point that the guy wouldn't give him anymore. And when he went in to get it, the guy told him his tab was full, he couldn't get any more on charge, and so he came and paid his tab, he couldn't buy any more there. And he got mad, so he picked up a case of whiskey and walked out with it, telling the guy to put it on his tab. But I made the guy mad, so he called the police. 
And my dad was arrested for strong armed robbery, and that's why he was in prison. And I stood there and listened to that story. And I decided that no matter what, I was never, ever going to be that kind of man. When I was 17 years old, I got another resentment. Again, at my mom and my stepdad. This time, they were getting divorced. My mom had had enough of him, and she had her own reasons. It wasn't to do with us kids and the way he treated us. And I'm not going to go into that. But I got angry. And I decided it was because of me. It didn't happen that way because of what I said and what I did. And because they were getting divorced because of me, I was mad at them, and I was going to show them. They made me mad, so I couldn't make them mad. And the only thing I could think to do to make them mad was get good and drunk. Something I had sworn I was never going to do. But now I knew that this would make them mad, so that's what I did. I went and got a fifth of sudden comfort. Actually, I got my cousin, older cousin's boyfriend, to go by me. Just a sudden comfort, a case of Colt 45 and a case of Cruz. And I got my cousin Charlie and my younger brother Dan and his younger brother Roy to go with me. And we went and sat out under an oak tree out by a pharmacist and got drunk. And I drank a half that fifth of sudden comfort, two six packs of Budweiser and three of the Coors. And it did the trick. I got drunk. I got falling down, crawling drunk, super drunk, couldn't find my way to the car drunk, crawling through a cornfield drunk, stepping out of a moving car drunk, beating my head on the sidewalk to see the pretty stars drunk. And the Tulare County Sheriff's public intoxication drunk. On my first night out of drinking, ended up at Tulare County Jail for public intoxication. And my mom got called up 3 o'clock in the morning to come get me because they were tired of babysitting me. So she got her sister and her oldest daughter, her sister's oldest daughter, and four of them came and got me, put me in the back of the station wagon and took me home. And I went through the illness of sobering up for three days. Little by little, remembered what had happened that night. And when I finally remembered everything, there was one thing I decided. That no matter what, I had to get some more of that liquid. Because I had had fun. For the first time in a long time. I was able to step out of a moving car at 25 miles an hour, do somersault, and stand up at the edge of the road, unhurt. I thought, man, that's magical stuff. I need more. And I started drinking. And I started enjoying life. And I signed up to go in the Marine Corps. And I went in the Marines and I drank. And I worked. And I thought I was living life, just having fun. All the guys drank, I drank. It was all good. We worked all day, drank all night, worked all day, drank all night. Worked all week, drank all weekend. 
ายกุศลเ
in a, it's almost like an interview, but they're interviewing 150 people at one time. And I'm sitting in there doing my paperwork, and some guy walks through the door and he says, is there a Jack Hildreth in here? And I turn around and look, and I raise my hand and say, yeah, that's me. He says, come here for a minute. We've just been in there for 10, 15 minutes. It started on our paperwork. And I got up and walked over there, and I wondered, what's going on? And he introduced himself to me, and he shook my hand. And he says, I'm the maintenance foreman of the maintenance team for the entire plant. And I was reviewing your application out here. And after reviewing it, I decided that I want you on my maintenance team. He says, you can quit doing what you're doing in there. Can you be here tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock for a physical? And I said, sure. It's okay. Be here tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. Go to the nurse's office and do a physical for me. And then she'll, we'll line you up with work uniforms and stuff and you'll join my maintenance team. We'll work nights at first. But as soon as possible, I plan to get you on my day shift with me. And I thought, yes. <laughs> I've arrived. They know how important I am. He said, so go home, get a good night's sleep. Don't go out party. Don't go out celebrating. They crown on drinking around here. Go home, get a good night's sleep. Show up. Bright eyed and bushy tail. You're on the team. So I went outside, got in my trunk, and drove home, called my girlfriend, told her, guess what, babe, I got a job. Let's go celebrate. Took her to the bar. Went and had some drinks, did some dancing. Took her home, went home. Took off my clothes, jumped in bed, got a good night's sleep. It's two o'clock in the morning. Got up at 5.30. Threw on my clothes. Drove over to the south side of Tulare, walked into the place, went down in front of the nurse. She talked to me for a couple minutes, put some papers in front of me, said, Did you excuse me for a minute? I said, Sure. She got up and walked out. Pretty soon she'd come back in, but she had this guy in a suit with her. And the guy looked at, down at me and he says, uh, Jack? And I said, Yeah. Did you do me a favor? I said, What's that? He said, Well, I'll make him fuss. Did you get up? Walk out the doors, get your truck, drive away from here and forget you've ever been here. He said, excuse me? He says, look, I'm going to put it something. He says, I can tell you're drunk. The nurse can tell you're drunk. She came and got me because you're drunk. We can see it in you, we can smell it on you, and we don't like you, type. We don't want you here. you got no business here. We can do this easy way or we can do it the hard way. You can get up and walk out and leave. Or I can call the police and have them come down here and pick you up and take you away. Which way do you want? So it's the first time in my life I got fired from a job before I got to work at the job. That sucked. And I had to get my truck and drive back to Goshen. Get on the phone, call my fiance, and tell her that I got fired from the job 
almost before I got hired for the job. How sad is that? So I decided I could never drink again. That's all it was to it. Decided I wasn't going to. October 12, 1990. And I didn't drink. I didn't drink for 15 days. Went to my weekend at road camp. Went to my drills with the National Guard. Got up every day and looked for a job. Got a job with a place called Eagle Air. Called this guy out of the blue on the phone. And I'm a good talker. I'm an alcoholic for good talkers. I called this guy. He happened to own a diesel shop. I found his name in the phone book. I called him and told him, look, I'm a diesel mechanic. I've been a diesel mechanic. I was a diesel mechanic for Marine Corps. I grew up doing mechanics with my dad, building motorcycles in the, in the garage, working on diesel trucks with two uncles at drive trucks, rebuilding motors, and transmissions, and everything else. I'm a mechanic. I'm a diesel mechanic trained by the Marine Corps. did it for eight years in the Marine Corps. I've been a pin-setter mechanic. I can do anything. And if you don't, if you have an opening in your company that you need to fill and you don't hire me, you're making the biggest mistake of your career. Mind you, this guy ain't never seen me. Has no idea who I am. He didn't have an ad out looking for work. And he starts laughing. He says, you know what? He says, I'd hire you on the spot if I was the boss. He says, but I'm not the boss. He said, but if you can come down here and repeat what you just told me to the boss, I'm pretty sure that she can find a place for you in our company. I said, who's the boss? He's my wife. <laughs> I said, I'll be right down. So I grabbed my toolbox, threw it in the van, drove down there, walked into the place. After if she was his wife, and she said she was, I said, then you're the lady I'm supposed to talk to. And I sat down and began to tell her exactly what I told him. And she looked at me and she just smiled. She says, you know, we do have a lot of work right now. And my husband and son are kind of behind on keeping up with the work. So, uh, when can you start? Right now? She says, okay, go home, get your tools and bring them down. I think my husband's got a job he can put you on. My tools are in the van. I'll bring them in to get started. And I went to work for diesel air. So I was working every day. And I was going to road camp on weekends. And going to drill on the weekends I worked in a road camp with the National Guard. And for 15 days I didn't drink. And for 15 days I was miserable. And on the 15th day, I couldn't take it no more. I needed to get some sleep because I had to drill in the morning. It was a big day at drill. I'm a battalion motor sergeant. And I was shaking and I knew I couldn't sleep. And my head started arguing with me. And my head told me that if I just go have one beer, I can calm myself down. I can let all this go. And I can get some sleep. And then I'll be fine for tomorrow. And that started the first 45-minute argument I've ever had with myself. And I sat there in that chair, and the TV's going full blast, and I couldn't tell you what was on it, because all I'm doing is sitting there 
arguing back and forth from the left side, right side of my brain, whether or not to go get that drink. And finally, getting the drink won. And I got up and I walked out and went to have one drink. Passed my paycheck and ended up looking at my clock at 6.30 in the morning at some people's house I didn't know before that night. Realizing that I'd been drinking all night I knew that I had to get to the guard unit in present by 7.30. Decided I could make it. Just grab a couple six packs out of the fridge, throw them in my little button, drive to Goshen, grab my uniforms, change in the car on the way to Fresno, I should make it. So I sit out the door, grabbing a couple six packs on the way, jumped in the button, took off, got two blocks and got pulled over by my player TV. who arrested me and took me to jail for DUI. Went into the drunk tank, laid down, and went to sleep. Woke up. About six hours later, somebody was saying, Jack, Dilder, Jack, Dilder. Dilder up, set it up. And I woke up and I looked around, saw the familiar faces, realized where I was. Memories started coming back, remembered what I did. And I just started crying. They booked me out of Clary County Jail after six hours on my own recognizance. Called me up to the window. Gave me all my stuff back. Counted back out. Like something like $2.72 of my paycheck. That's what I had left. Walked out of Clare County Jail, I walked across town, found my car with two six-packs in it and the key on the floorboard, got in it, drove to Ghost, threw those two six-packs in the dumpster outside the house, walked in the house, sat down at the kitchen table, still crying. When I say crying, I mean ball tears rolling down my face. I was whipped. I was drunk, knew I was going to get drunk again, knew there was nothing I could do about it. I was switched. My grandmother and my mom came in and sat down at the table like you folks are sitting at these tables tonight. Looked at me across the table crying, asked me what had happened, and I told them the story. My mom looked at me and said, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. Call somebody for help, I said, I don't know. I'll never forget the look in her face when she looked across the table at me and said, Jack, it's about time. She'd known for a long time and never stood up. She said, Jack, it's about time. And she stood up and got the yellow pages and handed it to me. And I opened the yellow pages and I found a number for to call about alcoholism and I called it. Some guy on the other phone started telling me things. Percy asked me questions, and I told him the story pretty much the way I told you guys. And then he started telling me things to do. Because I didn't know what else to do, I did what he said. And by doing what some stranger said, things started changing. 
I went through two recovery homes. I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I started going to meetings and meeting people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me that there was a way that a guy like me didn't have to feel the way I felt. That a guy like me didn't have to live the way I've been living. There was a way that life would be different. And all I had to do was be willing to do what they did. They told me that I needed to get a big book and read it. They told me I needed to go to meetings. They told me I needed to get a sponsor and work the steps. They told me I needed to be honest. And I heard that honesty thing. I heard it real strong. So when I went to court for my DUI, after my first recovery home, the judge let me have a stay of execution and I went through the 28-day program that he set the court date for the day I got out. And they told me that this thing would only work if I could be rigorously, totally, brutally honest with everybody and everyone about everything about me. And I got out of that 28-day recovery home, having heard that, and wanting what you people had and not knowing how to give, I went to court. And the judge read my charges. Actually, he sent a paper out. I've never seen him do this before, but he sent this paper out to all the people in the courtroom that were there for charges. And what it was was an information packet that told us what we were being charged with. So that when it was our turn to be called up there, we'd know what what to say about it. And I think I was like the third person called. And he called me up there and I walked up. He read the charges to me and asked me if I was ready to plead on them. And I said, no, Your Honor, you're, I'm not. So you're not. He said, why not? I said, because they're wrong. He said, they're wrong. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you're charged with DUI second offense. Are you telling me you weren't driving under the influence? I said, no, Your Honor, I'm not. He said, well, are you saying you were driving under the influence? I said, yes, Your Honor, I would. He said, well, I don't understand, Mr. Hogan. He said, why are you not ready to plead? I said, because the charges are wrong. He said, well, I don't understand. Explain what you mean they're wrong. I said, Your Honor, it's a DUI third offense. They've missed one. I'm doing weekends for my second offense. This is a third offense. The whole courtroom went quiet. I've never seen that before either. The girl who does all that typing, it never stops. She stopped. Everybody just stopped, froze, staring at me like I was insane. And he said, Mr. Hilbert, he said, do you know what you're saying? I said, yes, Your Honor, I do. He said, do you know the difference between a DUI second offense and a DUI third offense? I said, yes, Your Honor, I do. He said, explain the difference. So I told him what the penalties and fines were for a second offense, and I told him what the minimum penalties and fines were for a third offense. And the third offense carries two years in prison. When I got down, he looked at me and he said, Well, Mr. Hogan, I can see that you understand the difference and the gravity of the difference between the two. And he just gave the bailiff a look. And the bailiff walked out of the courtroom. It was gone about two, three minutes. And he came walking back in with a piece of paper in his hand. 
He handed it to the judge, whispered something in his ear, stood aside. The judge read the paper, looked up at me, and he says, You know, Mr. Hilton? He says, You're right. This is a fair defense. He says, I'm going to tell you something. He said, I don't know what happened to you in 28 days in that recovery home. He said, But I got to tell you, that's the most integrity I've ever seen out of somebody in my courtroom on charges. Whatever's happening to you in that program, I hope you stay with it. He said, as far as the charges, you're charged with second offense by the, by the district attorney's office. That's their screw-up. And if you're ready to plead guilty to second offense, I'm ready to sentence you and there's nothing they can do about it. So I'm going to ask you again. Are you ready to plead to the charges presented in front of you? Well, I'm not be honest, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> well, I said, yes, sir, I am. So he found me guilty of second defense DUI for my charge, and that was that. Instead of going to prison, I got to go into another recovery home, and I got to go to more AA meetings and get closer to God and closer to all of you and become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and began to believe that there was a lot more to this thing when applied than what my people mind would allow me to see. So I got a sponsor and I worked the steps. And one day at a time, the case of God, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, life was changed. Jack has changed. Jack's no longer an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic, but I'm not a practicing drunk. I'm not the man my father was. The man I had turned out to be that I didn't ever plan to be. And i tell you one more thing in this. My father wasn't the man that I thought he was. My mom told me that story out of anger. Funny part is about Six months after I got sober, after I got out of the recovery homes, I was home at my grandmother's house, sitting down talking to her, and my grandmother was me. She had a heart glow, and I loved her to death. I carried her with a garden hose when I was five years old to get back at her, but I loved her to death. I was sitting down talking to her, and somehow the subject of that incident came up, and I told her what Mom had said about my dad, that I didn't be in the drunk, and how I never wanted to be the drunk my father had been. And my grandmother looked at me, and she says, Jack, she says, as long as I live, I'll never understand certain things that take place in this life. She says, i got to tell you something right now. She says, don't think that of your dad. Let me tell you something. And she told me a story I didn't know. See, when they were migrant farmers, my dad was one of the hardest workers of the group. She said, your dad worked hard. All his life he worked hard. He could have had a job. He was educated. He could have had a job just about anywhere. But he loved your mom so much, he went to work on the farms with us. He traveled with us to be his mom. And one year up in Oregon, 
he got an opportunity to make more money working in a coal mine than he could make picking strawberries with us, so he took it to make more money for his family. And while he was working down in that mine, he got tuberculosis. And back then, they didn't have the hospitalization and the medicine that we have today. When you got tuberculosis, they quarantined you. They put you in a netted room in a hospital, and they cut away the affected part of your lungs. For him, they cut away one and a half of his lungs. When he got out of the hospital, he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't walk from this side of the room to that side of the room without having to stop and wheeze. Because he was working on half a lung. And so he started drinking. And he ended up with drunk. Yeah. Because your, your father was a good man. He was my favorite son-in-law. And don't you ever, ever think that he was the kind of person that your mom loved you for. He was a lot better than that. And if it wasn't for the tuberculosis, he'd still be here. And you'd still have a father. You should be proud of what he was and what he'd given you. And it took becoming an alcoholic and a drunk in recovery to learn that. I love alcoholics moms. I love AA. I love being sober. And I want to thank you for letting me be here to share that with you tonight. My name is Jack and I'm an alcoholic. Quite a, quite a few 
people in recovery bought beers from me at the show station.